0: Story is is um, probably not a, unlike a lot of other people that that uh, were there in that time of of, uh, of disruption, or uh, perhaps the, even as the the last verse of Judges describes a, a time in which people basically just did whatever they wanted to do. There was no no king, and they did what was right in their own eyes and and we know that that, that led to um, uh, probably some depravity. And certainly we know that famine was a part of that. And, and uh, the story that, that Ruth, or, or excuse me, uh, Naomi and Elimelech went through with their sons is, is probably not unlike a lot of ours as well. We find ourselves in places of desperate need. Places where it, we feel beset by difficulty. And some of us would, would even um, find ourselves in that place where we even battle bitterness. I think I, that's just a real um, piece of, of life for us as, as people on this planet. But the beautiful thing is, is that God has great provision for us. Even in the midst of those struggles. Um, we know that here in this final chapter, we see the centrality of Boaz. Boaz is seen here as the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer of Naomi and of Ruth. It's interesting that he, we, we discover here, that he is the one who takes the initiative to bring about this redemption It is not asked for, it is offered, and he pays a price. There is a price involved here, and he publicly claims his own. He then provides a name, an inheritance, where previously there was just ruin, ruin, and and an inescapable sense of hopelessness, and he restores and sustains Naomi, even in her old age, through the birth of a child. Ruth and Naomi couldn't have done any of these things on their own. They were absolutely destitute and needed the intervention of someone beyond themselves. And it's the same in our lives. Each one of us finds ourselves when we, are, when we are totally honest with ourselves. We don't have the means. We don't have the capability of standing before the Lord in righteousness. We do not have that in and of ourselves. But by virtue of the gift given to us through Jesus Christ, we are able to stand not only in assurance of the present, but assurance assurance even into eternity. Our inheritance is secure. So let's, let's read together, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke, was passing by. And he said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. It's kind of interesting that Boaz would have that kind of that kind of sway, right? Be able to say, hey, guys, come and sit. And they would just do that. Then then he said, verse three, he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab has to sell a piece of land which belonged to her brother, our brother, excuse me, our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people, If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess the widow of the deceased in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. (laughs) Naomi's prediction at the end of chapter three, look at it with me, verse 18. She said, wait daughter until you know how the matter turns out for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. That was Naomi's prediction. She knew Boaz. It's interesting. We, over the last several weeks, we've discovered, we, we learned that what the name of Naomi means, what the name of Ro- Ruth means, Elimelech, and, and Malan, and Chilion, and and they all are very significant because they speak of who these people are. But we haven't heard what Boaz means. Boaz means fleetness. Fleetness. Now, what in the world does that mean? It's not a, uh, a, a word we use typically, right? Fleetness. Well, have you ever heard the expression, the expression fleet afoot? Right? What does that mean? It means that somebody is able to get up and run with ease. They are, they are quick. They are Uh, People who are able to move without inhibition. And that's who we see Boaz to be as well. He is the one who is right at the gate, ready to go. In fact, in verse 12 in chapter 3, take a look. He says, and now it is true, I am the close relative. However, there is one closer than I. And he begins to take Action to deal with that reality, and he moves quickly. Um, He finds himself at the gate, the gate of the little village of Bethlehem. Now, the gate is a place where where, um, decisions were made. It's kind of like the town square of days of old. We don't really have that kind of place, that central gathering place. um, in informal in sense in our city today but we do have city hall, do we not? Decisions are made there and that's really what is going on here at the city gate or at the gate of this little village. Contracts were signed, contacts were ratified there it's where elders dispensed justice among uh, the people and quite honestly it's also where the poor waited for help it's this place of public gathering and that is where that is where Boaz places himself and he calls the the uh, the kinsman the nearest kinsman to come and sit down with him and he calls 10 elders 10 elders Uh, now what's that about why 10 elders um, do you think it was just a like, you know, a men's club kind of thing? Hey, guys, come and sit down with me. No, there's something very formal going on here. And we see it in Deuteronomy 19, where the Lord says, one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin. And any sin that he sins, at the mouth of two Witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. Boaz is going about this business of establishing fact. Jesus uses this, this, uh, this understanding, this very much a, a, a pattern, a law in the life of Israel. He uses it in Matthew chapter 18. Many of you are familiar with that. Where, where he speaks of, you know, if, if your brother sins, go to him. Go to him. But if he refuses to hear you, take back two or three. And that is that, is that sense of let's establish fact here. Um, we also see it in the life of Paul in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He is, he is defending his apostleship. And he uses this two or three witness rule there as well. He also uses it in his instruction to Timothy and in concerning accusations that are brought against elders. He says, it's, it's not enough to hear the hearsay from one person, but by the mouth of a minimum of two or three witnesses, you are to proceed with dealing with an issue like that. So. So uh, that's what's at work here. Now, it's interesting here, however, that there, there's kind of an unexpected twist in this story. Um, we see that uh, Boaz uncovers the fact that there is a piece of property for sale. This is the first time we've heard about this, right? In this, in this story of, of Naomi and Ruth. It belonged to Elimelech. Now, the kinsman is invited to redeem this because Naomi is at the end of her resources. She has no way to support herself. And so the kinsman is invited in to buy the piece of property to provide resources for Naomi. Um, Interesting, however... It wasn't just the property that Elimelech had in mind. There's something more going on here. Verse 4, we see these words, I thought to inform you. Um, you need to know this. It, the, the literal translation is that I, I, I thought I should uncover your ear. I should, I thought I should make you aware of this additional provision that is necessary here. You need to know this. And Boaz sets out on, on working strictly according to the letter of the law. He's very legal about this. Uh, and that is where we go need to go back to Leviticus chapter 25. There we see the beginning of and the implementation of this law in Israel. Again, Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 23. This is what the Lord says. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. Leviticus 25 is all about how God's people are supposed to deal with the poor and the sojourner. And the law of redemption starts with this, that the land belongs to God. I find that very interesting. The land belongs to God, and those who take possession of it are simply given the, the responsibility of stewardship, the stewardship of that property. And, and that is what we're looking at here. Now it's interesting as well that God has provided, yes, the opportunity even to sell this property, that's what the redemption is all about, to meet the needs of those who can no longer provide for themselves, but it also includes the law of jubilee. Jubilee, now what is that? Is it the, it's the, the anniversary of the queen's uh, rise to, to uh, her reign. Right? Do you remember that a couple years ago? Surely it's that. Well, no. It's very interesting. The Lord provides the year of jubilee to return the property to its original or owner every fifty years. That's how God ensures that the the inheritance will not be lost. Uh, again, Leviticus chapter 25 verse 25. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property. Then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy it back. Buy back what his relative has sold or in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption. In other words, he comes into some money somehow then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it. It's got to be a fair transaction, right? And so return to his property. But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of the person who bought it, the purchaser, until, until the year of Jubilee but at the jubilee it shall revert that he may return to his property see god has ensured that we cannot lose our inheritance we need to know that you know there are there are some who worry about um, whether or not their salvation is secure when i say yes to jesus do i need to uh, is there something I need to do to ensure that that salvation stays with me? And they live in fear. They live in fear that they might lose their salvation. God is entreating in, in us here to understand, no, the inheritance that he provides for us as his people is a permanent installation. We're not going to lose that because it's his gift. It's his provision. It's interesting that this this um, this law, the kinsman redeemer, is mentioned here in Leviticus 25. If we look at Leviticus 26, and I encourage you just just for the the investigation of it, go home and read Leviticus 26, because it speaks of it speaks of the blessings of walking within God's plan. In other words, the blessings of walking in obedience. Now, when I hear the word obedience, I go back to my childhood. I don't know if you do, but I I, I go back to this place of, of feeling like, oh, I have to obey. I don't want to obey. I have to obey. And, and the reason I have to is because there's punishment if I don't. <laughs> We've all been there, right? And, and we have to understand that God's, God's provision of his law is not to just keep us under his thumb. The provision of his law is to bring blessings Blessing into our lives. And when we, when we draw outside of the lines, we think, we, we think that's great freedom, right? But we end up in the weeds very often. We end up paying a price instead of living in blessing. That's a side note. That's Leviticus 26. I encourage you to take a look at that uh, later. So back in Ruth. Verse four, Boaz is working again strictly to the letter of the law. And he, he, prent, he, he presents this, this to the nearest kinsman. Hey, here's something that needs to be done. He, and, and Boaz is clear in recognizing that the nearest kinsman has priority over himself. But he also asserts the fact that he is ready to act. He is ready to act if indeed the nearer kinsman declines. He's ready to step in. The man's reply in verse 4, again, is, is it, it kind of feels like, whoa, wait a second, this is all of a sudden going in a place I didn't expect because he says, I'll redeem it. Uh, what? This story is about Ruth and Boaz and this beautiful thing beginning and this is not going where we expected, right? <laughs> Verse five reveals Boaz has a backup plan. His backup plan is that not only do we deal with the property In the, with the kinsman redeemer, but in that process, there is another thing that needs to be dealt with. There are two distinct laws at work here. You see, there's another one and it has to do with the brother-in-law of the deceased. And the marrying of his widow for the sake of the continuing of the inheritance. It's in Deuteronomy 25 when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out in Israel. Hmm. Boaz has follow up and follow through plans here. Verse five, the kinsman, hey, he he didn't recognize that there. (laughs) Perhaps he was thinking, well, I don't have to worry about this because Naomi is so old that she wouldn't be able to bear children. So I don't have to deal with that. He overlooks the fact that Ruth is in the picture. And here we see that um, Boaz introduces this idea that Elimelech's property technically, again, according to the law, technically was passed to Malon and Chilion, right? Elimelech's sons. And... um, Suddenly, this gets a little sticky. (laughs) It's it's no longer a straight line. There's some curves in the road here. And the Redeemer's duty involves not only the mother of the two sons, but also their widows. Uh, 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 And and whom the only one is there is Ruth. So verse 6. The kinsman's previous enthusiasm about, hey, I'll redeem it. I'm I'm, I'm ready to do that. His enthusiasm comes to a screeching halt. (laughs) Uh, Wait a second. I hadn't planned on that. Think about why. It wasn't just that he wasn't interested in getting entangled in a relationship. You see, if the property actually belonged to the heir, the rightful heir, he would buy back the property, spend the money to do that, and then in the end have to give it to the rightful heir because he is not the rightful heir. The rightful heir will be the child born of the widow. Does that make sense? So he's in that this is no longer a profitable idea for him. And so he, he says, I'm out. I'm no longer able to do this. And Boaz is ready to step in and say, I am. And when he does so, It underlines, first of all, the very distinct personal cost of acting as a kinsman redeemer. There is cost involved. And Boaz is willing and ready to absorb that cost. And it magnifies the compassion of Boaz because he is doing this, he's doing this even for a foreigner. Someone who does not, quote unquote, belong to the people of Israel, but has been adopted in. And it reflects, it reflects covenant love. In the Hebrew, that understanding of love is chesed. Say chesed for me. Chesed. Now look at your neighbor to your left and say that and try not to spit on them. <laughs> Hesed, it, it is a covenant love. And it's not, it's, it's not based upon on the return. It's not dependent upon the circumstances. It's a love that says I am committed to you, period. And it is my decision to do that. It is a covenant love that says, regardless of where this goes, I am committed to you. That is what's being expressed here. Hmm. Let's read verse 7 and 8. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter that... A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Okay, what is that about? (laughs) Um, Well, I think you can think about the removing of the sandal as kind of a a signature on a legal document. When it comes to property, um, when you buy a piece of ground, what do you do on that piece of ground? You have the opportunity to walk around it, right? And in Israel, the climate is much like it is here. Ever been out in the desert barefooted? Not something you want to do for very long, right? And so you you um, and this is perhaps presumption on my part why this idea of the exchange of the sandal is is here. But when you own a piece of property, you are able to walk on it wherever you want. And when you buy it, you, it's probably a good idea to find out where the borders are. And so you walk the property, and. And what you are saying in the giving of the sandal to the other is, it, it's now yours, you have the right to walk this property. So they, they, they make this contract. Verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech. And all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up a name, get this, in order to raise up a name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birth. You are witnesses today. Again, um, Boaz has gathered these witnesses for this very solemn understanding, and 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 Boaz is not only assuming the responsibility; he's assuming the rights. Therefore, there's very precise legal language here, but it's done with great. Great compassion and kindness. The affirmations are first that the kinsman will redeem the property, the property of Naomi that has been passed down to her sons. And then he, he adds to that marrying Ruth so that the family name will not die out. There's more than more going on here than simply affection. Do you understand that, that this is about commitment. It's not, it's not simply about the fulfilling of desire. Verse 11. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, "We are witnesses." May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathath and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring, which the Lord shall give you by this young woman. Um, we're looking here at how, how the people of Israel came about. Do you remember that Israel is the new name for a gentleman named Jacob? Remember him? Yes. And Jacob was kind of a conniver, right? He connived to steal his brother's blessing from his father to become the inheritor. And so there's some of that going on here. And then Jacob goes and and, uh, desires to marry this woman that he's fallen in love with. Remember her name? Rachel. He he contracted to work seven years to be able to have the hand of Rachel. And what happened? Deception, right? Right? by Rachel's father. And so he ended up marrying Leah. And then he worked another seven years for Rachel. And God, God is even in the midst of all that, dare I say, family dysfunction. I mean, seriously, it sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? And it gets worse. What's the story of Judah and Tamar? Take a look at at, uh, Genesis 38. Seriously, go home and read it. Are you serious? That's where this has come from? Yes. You see, even the brother-in-law law law was at work in this story of Tamar and Judah because uh, Tamar was married to Judah's son. He died. She married his other brother. He died. And the only one left was still a very young little boy. Was she to wait for him to grow up? So on a festival day, she dresses as a harlot, believe it or not. And guess who happens to solicit her? Yeah. None other than Judah. And they end up having a son. Tamar has a son by Judah. His name is Perez. We're going to discover in a few minutes where this goes. It's amazing to me that God is able to bring his provision even out of This level of family dysfunction. Why did did Pastor Mike come and open the book of Ruth to us? He believed that the Lord had a message for us. He believed and understood that, that the Lord has a message for us. First of all, that God loves us. He loves us. And his plans for us are good. <laughs> and I have to say at this point, looking at this, God has good plans for us even in spite of our dysfunction can I say that out loud I just did yeah even in spite of our dysfunction God has good plans for this church for this family and we cannot miss that our confidence is in him and his provision Let's look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord enabled her. Who enabled her? The Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman, then the women said to Naomi, "Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Take a look here. Take, understand, look at the language. What's the last word of that last sentence, verse 15? Him, right? Who does that refer to? No, not Boaz. The child. It refers to the child. (laughs) And look back up into verse 14. The ladies say, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. Initially, we think that's Boaz, right? But as we read further, they're talking about the child, the child. The child has become the redeemer. Let's let's read a little further. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name saying, it's interesting, who named this child? The neighbors. (laughs) Would you like that to happen in your house? The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. You see what's going on here? God is bringing about his plan of salvation for all of his people Even in the midst of this craziness. We've talked about the names meaning various things. Just take a stab at what Obed means. It means servant or serving. Take note as well that hang on to that idea. Servant, serving. That's the name of Obed. Also, if we go back and look at verse 15, may he also be to you a restorer of life, a sustainer in your old age. Those words have the context of and the connotation of deliverer helper there's something extraordinary going on here the spiritual application here is that the heart at the heart of God's law is his character and his character is marked out by chesed covenant love. That is who God is. And Boaz foreshadows the love of God. The love of God expressed through his only begotten son. Obed was counted as the son of Malon, not of Boaz. For the sake of preserving the inheritance of that family. The child Obed is referred to throughout verses 14 and 15. He is seen as the redeemer. God has given his son, his only begotten son, To preserve the inheritance of his people. Obed, again, means servant. Jesus himself, you may recall Mark chapter 10. We were there, I don't know, a month and a half ago. And there, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, were were asking of Jesus, Lord, would you give us whatever we ask? Do you remember that? Who in the world would say yes to that? Whatever we ask, Lord. And, and Jesus, Jesus says, it's not mine. They, they, ask, they wanted to sit on Jesus' right and left. And he asked them, are you able to bear the, bear the um, responsibility of that? And they say, sure, we can do that. And Jesus responds, well, you know, it's, it's not mine to say who is on my right and left. But this I can say, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Obed means Servant. And who do we see in Jesus but a servant? Would you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53? It's going to be on the screen as well, but, but I'd like for you to read it out of your Bible if you can with me. You see, Jesus is not only a servant. He not only is the one who took a towel and washed his disciples' feet, but he is described here in the scripture as a suffering servant. You might ask why, why a suffering servant? Because the preservation, understand this, the preservation of the inheritance means paying the penalty for our sin. Isaiah 53 beginning in verse one. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a tender shoot like a and and like a root out of parched ground he had no form a stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him he was despised. And forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, cut off for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was really due? His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet he was placed He was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. if he would render himself as a guilt offering. This is a father giving up his only son for the sake of someone else's inheritance. We see that in the next lines. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It's interesting in verse 14 that we see that the congratulations for the birth of Obed the servant. Who do they go to? Look at it, verse 14. Who do the congratulations go to? They go to Naomi, don't they? They don't go to Boaz and Ruth, they go to Naomi because she's been the primary focus of the need for a kinsman redeemer, the one in need of redemption. And it's only through this child of promise that her burden and her bitterness is finally lifted. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron was born Ram. To Ram, Abinadab, and to Abinadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. This recounting of this lineage is completed in Matthew chapter one. And who does it end with? The son of David, the son of the living God, even Christ, our redeemer. You see, this story of the book of Ruth is It's not just about a poor woman in Israel who returns penniless, destitute by the misfortunes or the misdirection of a well-meaning husband. It is about each one of us and God's inheritance for us And yes, we can say God loves us. God loves us beyond measure. But more than that, he is committed to us. This is his family. And he is not about to allow the inheritance to disappear. My prayer and my hope is that we understand that God's provision for us, even as a church family, is good. It's his plan. Would you stand with me?